Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. April, I have to say that I have had today's guest on my radar since day one of this podcast. <laughs> I am very pleased to announce today's guest is Joy Bivens, one of the curators behind the landmark exhibition Inspiring Beauty, 50 Years of Ebony Fashion Fair. Co-curated by Virginia Heavens, the exhibition is the first ever to celebrate the pioneering traveling fashion show and debuted at the Chicago History Museum in 2013 before traveling on to several other locations, just as the fashion fair did for over 50 years. And while the exhibition may have only traveled to a few different locations, at its height, the fashion fair, with 200 pieces of the most extravagant, exciting pieces of high fashion in tow, traveled to over 180 cities. And this is just in one season. So just what is the fashion fair, you might ask? And why is it arguably one of the most important contributions to fashion in the 20th century? To answer all things Fashion Fair, we are pleased to welcome Joy Bivens to the show today. Welcome, Joy. Joy, welcome to the show today. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us. It's really awesome to be talking with you today. Right. So you are the chief curator of the International African American Museum in Charleston, South Carolina. And so before we dive into the Ebony Fashion Fair, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the museum as well as your work there. Sure. Um, The International African American Museum is an institution that is slated to open in late 2021. It's been in the works for nearly two decades here in Charleston, South Carolina. And our museum is uh, scheduled to open, or the site of our museum will be Gadsden's Wharf, which is right on Charleston Harbor. And Gadsden's Wharf is a really critical site in the history of the transatlantic slave trade and really in the development of this part of the world, it is uh, the place where many Africans took their first steps here on the North American continent. So it's estimated that more than 40% of uh, Africans who arrived here in the Americas took their first steps on Gaston's War. So our museum is located there. And it really is a site that's dedicated to telling stories about Um, Africans, African-Americans that built uh, Charleston and South Carolina, but also about those connections to the larger African diaspora, to the nation and to the larger African diaspora. So we have a lot of history and culture to cover at this institution, and we're working to get that done in a short time here in Charleston. So I've been in the city of Charleston for nearly a year now, and my work is really to develop what that museum experience will be from the exhibitions and then also working with uh, our chief genealogist who's heading the Center for Family History, which is our place where our visitors will be able to learn about their own personal pasts or familial pasts as they um, come to this place where they can learn about African-American history and also the history of the larger African diaspora. So a really incredibly important museum and something it sounds like you're building, helping to build from the ground floor up, which is incredible. And actually, I didn't realize that the museum wasn't open yet, but there is an actually um, a really great archive of a digital archive of photographs online that um, dress listeners should definitely check out until you can get to the museum um, in a couple of years. So we'll be looking forward to that. And we are here today to talk about the Ebony Fashion Fair, which was the subject of an exhibition you co-curated with Virginia Heavens a few years ago at the Chicago History Museum. And the exhibition was entitled Inspiring Beauty, 50 Years of the Ebony Fashion Fair. And I believe it traveled to uh, North Carolina Museum of Art. Am I correct? It did. It actually had seven stops in its travel. 
How did I miss that? (laughs) (laughs) I really wish I, yeah, I did not. I I found out about it after it closed. So I'm a little embarrassed to say, but um, the garments on display were just incredible. I do have a copy of the catalog. And before we get to the Ebony Fashion Fair specifically, I want to talk about Ebony Magazine, which was founded over 70 years ago in 1945 by John Johnson. So can you tell us about the magazine's creator, but also why the magazine was such an important publication for African Americans? Sure. So Ebony Magazine was actually the second publication that the founder, John H. Johnson, uh, created in the 1940s. The first was called Negro Digest in 1942. And in 1945, he introduced Ebony Magazine to the world. Now, Ebony took a real page from Life Magazine, which was a pictorial magazine that depicted, you know, American life and had articles about different parts of a a U.S. culture. And Ebony was, in essence, a response to that kind of publication. It it sought to fill that gap within um, the African-American community. So the magazine really took on the the project of creating a visual image, if you will, of the best of African-American life, the best of Black life. So it is the place where you went to see or where you could see Black celebrities and Black achievement and fashion and travel and so on and so forth. And it really spoke to kind of the lack of that kind of publication, that kind of media that was being addressed to an African-American audience that was really um, hungry to see images of itself that weren't defined by dominant culture. So ultimately, this magazine started in 1945, very quickly became a staple within many African-American homes, you know, it was a subscription magazine. So it flourished and it flourished out of Chicago. Um, started on the south side of Chicago. And in the 1970s, the Johnson Publishing Company moved downtown Chicago, but it was always kind of moving farther north in in the trajectory of its history. So the magazine became kind of a staple of African American culture. It's where you found your best dressed women, where you could find recipes, where you could see who was hot, who was not within the larger African American culture. And so over this decades long existence, it really created an archive of African American life and culture here in the United States. Yeah, and I especially like how you discussed in the catalog how racist society and racialized society, while they were present in the magazine, they were certainly discussed in the magazine, it was no way its focus. It was really, like you said, focused on highlighting these more positive aspects of African-American lives. You know, something that if someone wasn't experiencing as of yet, you could, some things that you could aspire to. And one of the things that you could inspire to was to be, um, to follow fashion and to be a part of fashion. And that kind of leads me into my next question, which is, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about what it was like to be an African-American during the 1940s. This is, of course, the World War II era, segregated military, segregated everything. Uh, I know as a Black woman during this period, you could not just walk into a department store and try something on. You would have to purchase it and therefore own it to even um, get to try it on to see if it even fits. So is an incredibly polarizing uh, period to live. Well, for um, most Black people in the 1940s and obviously before um, and well into the, the late 1960s, the United States was a segregated, racially segregated society. So there were just avenues of American life that were close to you. And while we could really frame it as there are places where Black people were kept out of, what it did was it also created the opportunity for Black people to be entrepreneurial in terms of creating businesses that catered specifically to Black consumers, right? So John Johnson, through Ebony Magazine, is is not only showing these images of Black people as successful and and creative and so on and so forth. He's also showing that there are Black consumers who are looking to spend 
their money. They use these products too. And in many ways, it's an untapped market. And what he does is creates a visual image of this market that dominant society and all of these companies that from which black people purchase are not they're not targeting them, right? So within the pages of the magazine, you get a chance to see how African-Americans actually live and what they actually aspire to and aspire to be. So within, you're right, the 1940s, the magazine comes out after the war, um, World War II is completed, um, after the victory is won, And, you know, many African-Americans were radicalized, politicized by the Second World War because they understood that they were fighting for the freedom of others, but did not enjoy that freedom at home. John Johnson understood that there was a market that was uh, just really waiting to see themselves in ways that uh, dominant media just did not show them. And so there was a kind of like a a perfect marriage. And you see how civil rights through the history of the magazine becomes more and more important and um, bigger and bigger stories, more stories about it as the magazine matures. So while life, yes, there were so many avenues in American society that were closed to African-Americans in the 1940s, African-Americans were creating opportunities for themselves. So you had within Black neighborhoods all throughout the the nation, you know, your millinery shops, milliner shops where you could purchase your hats. And, you know, there was the seamstress and the designer and the so on and so forth where you purchased your clothes that you couldn't try on at maybe Marshall Fields or other stores throughout the nation. So there was kind of like this, 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 this very interesting tension, I think, happening where the greater American society was closed, but that engendered kind of a greater creation of opportunity among African-Americans to do for themselves. Yeah, and like you said, one of the ways in which they did that was in the clothes they created for themselves and their communities. And we are here to talk about clothing and specifically fashion, the fashion fair, which is this incredible feature in Ebony Magazine. I mean, that became this traveling fashion extravaganza. But before it was this uh, traveling show, it was a feature in the magazine. And I'm hoping you can tell us about these early fashion features and their importance in not just sharing fashionable clothing with the readership, but really changing their relationship to it. There's a change in the relationship to the garments, but there's also the magazine as a place to, again, express something that was already happening within the culture, right? So um, African-Americans with within the larger culture, dressing up, being dressed, being sharp, being put together was part of a, a larger cultural expression. And so while there's new fashions that are being shown within the fashion, within Ebony and within the fashion fair feature specifically, it's also a reflection of something that is happening within the community, right? So again, when you talk about this particular publication, the reason that it sticks is because there's a desire and there's already something happening within the larger culture that people can can connect with within the magazine. So those early fashion fair features, which were, you know, edited and kind of spearheaded by Frida DeKnight, who was the home services director. So she kind of covered everything from your recipes to your travel to the fashion features. Uh, really did feature things like hats and swimwear and how to how to dress for certain occasions and so on and so forth. And it also was a place where black models got a chance to have some shine, if you will, um, because there just wasn't the space for them in these other publications. So one of the reasons we really wanted to kind of look at the Ebony Fashion Fair is because, yes, there's this fantastic fashion and it's, it's lavish and it's luxurious and it's, it's beautiful and all of that, but it's connected to this, this larger social history that the magazine is helping to kind of explore and examine as well. And I also think thought it was uh, really important how you uh, wrote in the catalog about how 
the ebony was especially instrumental in projecting these images of glamorous and elegant black women that weren't yet really yet projected within mainstream culture. So basically saying, you know, I think you wrote black women could be every bit as glamorous as their white counterparts because in the mainstream culture and the images that were being projected um, in society, that wasn't an image that you often saw during that time. You you didn't see the dapper gentleman and you didn't see the glamorous lady. So within Ebony magazine, you not only and, and not even within the fashion fair column, but the covering of some of these debutante balls. And there was, you know, every year for many years, there was a feature about the best dressed women in America. So the best dressed black women. So you really got to see that, you know, African-American women, African-American men were really out here doing something extravagant and extraordinary that you weren't going to find that in the pages of Vogue or Harper's Bazaar. But the beauty of Black women, the beauty of Black men was being celebrated within this magazine. And what the fashion fair, the traveling show did was really give people a chance to see that kind of in a three-dimensional space, right? So not just look at the pictures, but see the people inhabit the garments. Right, and 1958 was the first year that Ebony's Fashion Fair went from being a feature in the magazine to a tour exhibition of fashion. Can you tell us a little bit about the impetus behind this transition? The more I thought about it, you know, you write something and then you, time passes, The first installation or the first kind of pilot of the fashion fair was in 1956, where John Johnson really brought these garments and his models to Dillard University as a way to raise money for that university uh, or the behest of um, the president's wife, the president of that campus's wife. And they put on a show they raised money for the institution, but when you purchased your ticket for the show, you also got a subscription to the magazine. So you either got a year subscription to Ebony or a six-month subscription to Jet Magazine, which was another publication of Johnson, um, of the Johnson Empire, media empire. So the impetus to take the fashion on the road, one, it was to get people to see or to allow people to see these beautiful garments in person. It was a way to fundraise for certain organizations, whether that be the, the Lynx or the Elks or what have you in a particular city. And then it was also a way to to make sure that these subscriptions to the magazines were being, you know, attached to the fashion show. So it was kind of like this whole situation where you had the the fashion, you had the business of the magazine, and then you had the philanthropic arm of the traveling show as well. So it, it really all worked together. So you got to see what you would see, the fashions that you would see in the magazine, up close and in person. So Ebony fashion editor Frida DeKnight oversaw the fashion fair traveling show from its beginnings until 1963 when she passed away. And it was after that that the fair came under the direction of the glamorous visionary Eunice Johnson, um, John Johnson's wife. Um, how did Eunice transform the fashion fair into this internationally celebrated display of not just fashion, but haute couture fashion? And why was this important? Well, um, Mrs. Johnson uh, was very instrumental in the founding of the company, in the founding of Ebony. She gave the magazine its name. She herself was a person who uh, was highly educated, but always had an interest in kind of art and culture. I think her minor in college was, was art. She, as a child, you know, she made clothes for her, her dad, so on and so forth. Um, so she brought with her um, an interest in fashion and also kind of this keen eye of what was hot, um, what was going to, who was going to be the best and the brightest among these designers. Um, and the thing that Eunice did, or I, I never call her Eunice. I always call her Mrs. Johnson because if I met her, 
I wouldn't call her by her first name. I would definitely was a Mrs. Johnson. Yeah. Um, she what what she did, and and you know this is part of the history of the show as well, is that they didn't, you know, it wasn't like they were going to borrow garments. They purchased everything for the show. And she really created a vision of glamour and luxury that took it to the next level. And she developed relationships with designers and she maintained those relationships to the point where, you know, by the 70s, you knew who Mrs. Johnson was. You knew she wasn't coming to just, you know, look. And she always bought things that were just kind of different and a little bit extra because her audience expected a bit more. They expected flair and and drama. So she always purchased things that were kind of at the far end of of what the designers (laughs) were creating. So um, she she did a great deal, not only, you know, she carried on the tradition started by Frida DeKnight, but she also just, she grew it, right? She grew the fashion fair. When the fashion fair started in 58, it went to about 24 cities. By the middle of 1976, they had to divide the show into kind of two seasons. So the winter and the spring, because it had grown to more than 100 cities. In the 80s, I think they did 180, you know, at the height, 1987, they did like 183 city tour. So they are, she is really kind of, this is her thing. She's taken over the editorial vision within the magazine, and she's really, you know, out here making a name for Eunice Johnson because she was a couture buyer as well, but also, you know, really making a statement with this fashion fair, this traveling show. So in terms of her power within that industry Uh, within the fashion industry and really her kind of vision for the fashion fair, she really is, she took it to the next level. Yeah. And you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but one of fashion's fairs uh, and Mrs. Johnson's uh, most significant legacies can be found in the showcasing and promotion of Black models. So how significant was fashion fair in changing the way Black women were depicted in the media, but maybe also how they saw themselves? Well, you know, when we were doing the research for the show and we went to talk to some of the early fashion fair models like there was some there's some women who were in that first show that we spoke to and Ebony magazine really was the only game in town for them even though they were um you know professionals if they wanted to be in print that was where they were going to be seeing Ebony, Jet, Tan, Hugh, all of these publications that were put out by the Johnson Company. In terms of the models that they chose, they were trying to create a sense of showing the diversity of hues within the African-American community. You know, they weren't necessarily picking from people who were already connected to the industry. So it was also an option, an opportunity for those who were not in the industry to really kind of try their hand at the craft and really practice it. And, you know, because they were moving so quickly and also going to so many cities, you really had to create some personality when you were walking these runways and so on and so forth. So in terms of what they did for creating space for Black models, you know, they're really at the vanguard because it's not until the late 60s, early 70s, and really not, you know, with any kind of regularity, the 80s that you start to see um, Black models in mainstream publications. So publications like Ebony and his counterparts were really the place that Black models got a chance to shine. And we're going to hear about one of these models specifically, Pat Cleveland, when we get back from a brief sponsor break. Welcome back, dress listeners. So one of Pat Cleveland's very first modeling jobs was with the Traveling Fashion Fair. She was just 16 years old when she joined the tour, and that was in 1966. And I 
I'm currently reading her memoir, Walking with the Muses, which is wonderful. I highly suggest our listeners check it out. And she really recalls excitement of the fashion fair experience. And this is the time when she met Muhammad Ali. Lots of exciting things and experiences happening for this young woman. Um, But she also talks about the fear that was involved when uh, she and the tour um, went to the American South. And at this time, this is the 60s, and it's a place deeply entrenched with racism. It's something that's most recently captured in the Oscar-winning film Green Book. So not only were these models groundbreaking in their display of fashion, they and the, the crew that they traveled with were incredibly brave and quite resilient in the face of much adversity and even danger. She writes about this run-in with the KKK, for instance. So can you speak a little bit more to the early roadblocks that the show Mrs. Johnson and its participants initially encountered and were able to overcome? So Pat Cleveland, of course you know, giant within the the fashion industry. And she's spoken pretty plainly about um, some of the encounters that they had in the South as they traveled. And she's traveling much later than some of those, those earlier models did when they were traveling the South. They traveled in a Greyhound bus. So it was a custom bus. Everybody on the bus, the clothes on the bus, They go, you know, they're traveling through the South and particularly in the early 60s, you know, during the time of the Freedom Rides, it was there could have been some confusion between their uh, mission and the mission of those activists who were so brave. But some of the models also speak about not being able to enter the front door to order food. Um, They also traveled with uh, models who were fair enough to pass and sometimes would go into these establishments and do what they needed to do for the rest of the crew. So again, while we're talking about the fashion fair and, and bringing fashion and really equalizing the ability to see it, the ability to experience haute couture um, and Altamoda and so on and so forth, upfront and in person, often they were going to places that had not yet been desegregated. And in the shows, if there were folks who were not, who were black and white, you know, they had to be separated, so on and so forth. So it's existing within the context of what's happening in the the rest of the United States. So it wasn't always easy to make your, make your way down South to show these fashions. But in many instances, that's where the, you know, they have the grandest audiences or the the biggest outpouring of support because it was really an opportunity to see something in places that were outright hostile to African-Americans. Right. And um, you write also about Mr. and Mrs. Johnson's initial struggles with even gaining access to haute couture fashion in Europe during this period. I mean, haute couture at this time is, you know, is really exclusive and exclusionary to African-American clients. And uh, Mrs. Johnson shows up there and really just breaks down all these barriers and becomes a really incredibly important haute couture client. Can you talk about um, how she was able to do that a little bit? Well, you know, there's a in Mr. Johnson's autobiography, there definitely is a section where he discusses uh, trying to get access to some of these fashion houses. And they're not just they're not all in Europe, some in the United States as well and and being denied and uh, really threatening, having to threaten legal action against some of these companies if they are not granted access So while there are within the dominant culture, there are prejudices and biases against African-Americans, those exist within the fashion industry where people were not necessarily taking them seriously as buyers. Right. Mm -hmm. Who are they to come and write these checks and and make these, you know, ultimately grand financial statements when that's not necessarily how people were encountering African-Americans. And so a lot of what they did in terms of breaking down those barriers was with their checkbooks. That's what Mrs. Johnson did, right? She's coming to see your work and she's going to buy most of your collection. You're going to take her very seriously. And I think that is what happened in, in developing these relationships is that when you're going to spend that she was spending so much money that she demanded a level of respect 
that uh, it had to be built, but because it was expected as, as she continued to come year after year, then she could do what she wanted ultimately within these circles. Right. And she herself, as you mentioned earlier, was a really important haute couture client herself. She wore haute couture fashion as well. And she's an incredibly fashionable, glamorous woman. So I don't think it would take much convincing. And I know you said by, you know, as as the fashion show progresses and progresses, the relationship that she builds with these designers is really, really interesting. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But I want to talk about the show itself, because you've you've mentioned it a little bit and 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 how by the mid-70s the show was traveling to 180 venues. I mean, this had really turned into this extravaganza, this incredibly exciting um, you know, event to look forward to. So if I was an audience member, someone was an audience member during this period, what would you have expected to see from a typical show? Okay, so at the height of the the show, they had about between 150 to 180 exits. So ultimately, that means that you're seeing that many garments within the span of the show. Um, The show would be between an hour and a half to two hours. There would be musical interlude and you would see it broken into the categories of the uh, of the type of fashion. Right. So day wear and swim wear and uh, evening wear, so on and so forth. Um, later in the show, these kind of uh, interpreted or acted out skits became very popular. Uh, men and women in matching ensembles, if you will, was also very popular with um, audiences. Of course, it ended with the bridal uh, scene. So it kind of took a, a while to get through the show and you had to it had entertainment value to it. There was a moderator or a commentator who described the fashions, described the scene. So it really was, it was an entertainment event with fashion, if you will. Right. And it's important to note too, I feel like that these weren't garments that were for sale. They were literally purchased to display in the magazine and at this fashion show for this performance that they put on annually. Absolutely. It was a performance. Many of the models had other talents. You know, they sung, um, they danced, roller skated. Whatever they brought with them, they also brought to the display of the fashion. You know, there are folks who would talk about a model who could turn as if she were on, you know, a a rotating pedestal or something like that. So there was there was a lot of oohing and eyeing going on at these shows that had to do with the garments, but also had to do with the ways in which the models inhabited and how they performed and that you just didn't walk and show what you had on, you know, you had to make it come alive for the audience. How wonderful. And as mentioned, the fashions on display were not just any off the rack fashion, but haute couture. I mean, we're talking about the creme de la creme of fashion. And you talked about she often went for the more avant-garde, more, you know, expressive pieces that the designers offered. So these are not, you know, inexpensive by any means. And your co-curator, of the Museum Exhibition Virginia Heavens called Mrs. Johnson a curator because of the thought and care that went into the selection of each and every garment for the show. Can you tell us a little bit about how she picked the fashions to be displayed and what she was looking for? Well, um, she was looking for things that popped, right? So, and she was looking for things that spoke um, luxury and expense when you see them, you don't have to try to figure it out. There was a lot of color. There was a lot of fur. There was a lot of sequence, a lot of leather. So things that really spoke to kind of the the actual value of the garment, because these were, this was supposed to be aspirational, right? This is the things that you you hope to be able to uh, wear one day, or you might not, you might wonder how, who would wear that? You know, as you're looking at, <laughs> how could I, where would I wear that? Um, because it was also, uh, again, speaking to the fantasy of fashion and not just the utilitarian nature of wearing something that's very smart. Although there was, you know, the complete look that we displayed within the exhibition where you you had the hair was done, the makeup was right, the accessories were on point, the garment was great, the shoes, everything was just so. But there was also a lot of fantasy within the show. So many things that were chosen, like a lot of, you know, high fashion wasn't necessarily 
you know, wearable. It was really about dealing with the ideas and the the design and the fantasy of, of, of what the designer was trying to bring to life. And she really wanted her audiences to enter that world. So a lot of what you saw on the fashion fair stage was it was sharp and it was smart and so on. But there was also things that were just kind of crazy and out there as well. She was trying to create something for the audiences to enjoy, but also for them to understand what was going on within fashion at a particular time. And you talked a little bit about Mrs. Johnson's relationship to these you know, Parisian haute couture designers or high fashion designers, and many of whom, like Emmanuel Angaro, for instance, she really supported from the beginning of their careers. She's an incredibly important client to the industry. Can you talk a little bit about this relationship? There's a wonderful photograph in the catalog of her and Yves Saint Laurent, for instance. Right. So Yves Saint Laurent, Bill Blass, Emmanuel Angaro, the, the thing about putting this show together was that we had access to thousands of garments that were purchased over several decades for the Ebony Fashion Fair. And for some of these designers, she pretty much had a full catalog. So Angaro from the late 60s all the way until the end of the run of the Ebony Fashion Fair. So she, Yves Saint Laurent, same thing. There were pieces within that collection that you can't really find anywhere because she she just took all of it. Um, <laughs> and Patrick Kelly and things that were made specifically for the Ebony Fashion Fair because of the relationship she had with the designers. Um, I think it was really, again, that becomes, because she wasn't around when we were doing the show to, to talk to us about that. We did have access to her um, assistant producer, who did, by the end of her life, was doing most of the buying for the show. But it's really in kind of the physical record of the garments where you could see those relationships, you know, you could see that borne out in terms of who was who was represented in that collection and what was represented in that collection. And there were some things missing that you would think would be in that collection. And so you kind of, you know, there were questions that, that developed over the period of kind of interacting with with those garments. But definitely you saw it, you know, Bill Blass, Yves Saint Laurent, Emmanuel Ngaro, just some phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal garments within the span of her collecting history. So she had her, she had her own collection too. So we had You have the fashion fair collection, but then there was what she herself purchased, which we didn't get into. But, you know, there was a a great record uh, within her own garment archive as well. And you mentioned Patrick Kelly. Uh, She was, of course, an invaluable haute couture client and patron, but she really was an important supporter of Black fashion designers from the very beginning. Can you tell us about uh, some of these designers that you featured in the exhibition? One in particular that stands out, well, there are a couple. Um, There's Rufus Barkley, who, you know, is, you may or may not have heard his name before. There is Patrick Kelly, somebody who is iconic. B. Michael, who made a, a very wonderful evening gown. So there are these designers that she worked with all the time. And then there's this history early on, which we didn't really cover because there's not a lot of documentation where when the fashion fair was going to certain cities in the early days, they would find out who was the designer, who was the seamstress or the tailor in that town who was doing really great work. And they would feature it along with all this other fantastic fashion that they were um, displaying as well. But Black designers actually sent in their designs to Mrs. Johnson at the Johnson Publishing Building. And if she liked it, she would include it in the show. So if you were someone who didn't have that, you know, high name recognition, if Mrs. Johnson was a fan of your work, your designs could be in the same show as a Yves Saint Laurent. Um, So it really was both the high end and then this kind of grassroots design work that or grassroots work that was going on as well. So, I mean, she was just an incredibly important patron, uh, it sounds like, from this period. For I mean, as you said, 
over 50 years of the Ebony Fashion Fair, so it's really incredible. I have to know, Joy, how did you and Virginia go about picking the fashions to be featured in your exhibition? I mean, you just referenced this archive that has, I think, thousands of pieces in it. How could you even begin to choose what to include? Well, I I think condition was uh, a great separator of the the women from the girls, for (laughs) one, right? So, um... We, we were looking for things that wouldn't require a grand amount of conservation, although we did have a couple pieces that were key that um, they needed some work because, as I mentioned, they were traveling to like 150, 160 cities. So these things had been worn many times and often had to have um, modifications just so people could get the models could get in and out of them quickly and then get back on stage. The magazine itself was very helpful. The programs from the Ebony Fashion Fair were very helpful. You know, those themes, what are the recurring things? Color was the probably the most recurrent theme in the Ebony Fashion Fair uh, titles or the, the theme for a particular um, season. We were looking for those designers that, you know, did have a significant depth within that collection. One of my favorite sections of the exhibition really had to do with that complete look, that put together woman where the, the jewelry, the accessories, all of that was we, we wanted to make a statement about that as well. We wanted to make a statement about the international nature of the fashion that was being displayed. Right. And those those key pieces that we knew. So there's a lot of Ngaro. There's a, a number of Saint Laurent pieces in the show. That haute couture comes up over and over again. Within the, the fashion fair history, there was also uh, in the early 80s, there was the addition of the plus size model. So we were trying to do a couple different things, right? Look at the arc of the show itself historically, but then also look at the ways in which these garments spoke to the themes that were important to Mrs. Johnson, right? So there's one section that's just about kind of luxury and and beads and fur and, and sequins, as I mentioned, um, but also has some pieces in it that you're just not going to see anywhere else because she, she bought it. So, <laughs> and I've heard stories, I can't, I don't know if I could confirm this, that, you know, some of the houses knew that she had pieces and they had their own, you know, they had their own kind of archives and they would come, they came to her to see if they could uh, get it back <laughs> to complete their own archive. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, I just think in terms of what she was able to do with creating a fashion fantasy for people who often, who at one point were locked out because of race. And in many ways, you know, most of us are, are just not going to these houses to buy anything, you know, other, we're not, we're just going to look. Um, so, or for young people who maybe had an interest in design and, and got a chance to see these things, um, on stage for the first time. And there's a real democratization happening on the Ebony Fashion Fair stage. And I also think the ability to make these very beautiful things, you know, kind of milk them for everything they're worth, right? In terms of providing a place for Black models and not just women to have a platform to show their stuff in terms of all the behind the scenes people who got a chance to, you know, prepare these garments, prepare the the men and women for the stage. It's both a fashion extravaganza, but it's just a really interesting capsule for thinking about history. Virginia is the fashion expert. I had an interest in what this magazine, what that company did in terms of really elevating African-Americans to see themselves in ways that that were not being projected at the time that the magazine started. And then to create this platform for all this 
you know, ultimately black excellence. And those garments became an extension of that. And I just think it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's phenomenal. It still gives me chills to this day to think that, you know, we did that show. It was, it was really awesome. I mean, incredibly groundbreaking show um, and and one that celebrates, as you just said, this incredibly important legacy carried on um, by Mr. and Mrs. Johnson. And John Johnson died in 2005 at the age of 87. Mrs. Johnson died in 2010 at the age of 93. And that was actually just one year after the very last fashion fair ended its run. So after traveling for 50 years, so why do you think the fashion fair ended? And can you speak a little bit to the endurance of Mr. and Mrs. Johnson's legacy in its wake? Sure. I think um, the fashion fair ended for a couple reasons. One, putting on a show of that magnitude is incredibly expensive. Publishing houses for the last several, you know, last couple of decades have been struggling. And I, I'm not sure that that was remained um, a priority of Johnson Publishing Company. I can't say that, but that's really for them to speak to. But it was a really expensive venture. You know, the nature of fashion also changed, whereas Mrs. Johnson was able to develop these relationships with certain houses and, and, you know, on the strength of her relationship by these things. Many of those houses then became part of larger conglomerates Um, So uh, purchasing in the ways in which they had earlier just wasn't as easy as it once had been. Right. And also Mrs. Johnson really was the spearhead and she in declining health and so on and so forth. So I think there are multiple reasons that fair ended. Some of them have to do with costs. Some of them have to do with the changing nature of the fashion industry. And then some of them have to do with the decline of the magazine, quite frankly. Those are my my hypotheses, if you will. And despite the fashion fair not enduring today, can you speak about Mr. and uh, Mrs. Johnson's legacy today and today's fashion industry, but also just today in um, American culture? Well, see, I don't think as many people know about Eunice Johnson in terms of her contributions to the fashion industry as should, right? The fashion fair, because it was put on by Ebony Magazine and primarily seen by African-Americans, is not as well known. Now, I will say that folks who were in the know and love fashion always knew about the fashion fair and would go, regardless of what color they were. But these were, this was a, a show that primarily supported, you know, Black organizations and so on and so forth. So there's still those divisions within our society that keep us from being as knowledgeable about people of other cultures and races that we should be. So unfortunately, I feel like it's not as well known as I would hope it would be. But within the culture, uh, the African-American culture and the the weight and heft of the Johnson legacy, I mean, it, it's kind of hard to overstated because they created a blueprint ultimately for how to tap into underserved audiences. So what Mr. Johnson did and, you know, with the support and and backing of, of Mrs. Eunice Johnson was see an opportunity to build something really, you know, quite spectacular. And it was like I said, it was Negro Digest. It was Ebony. It was Jet. It was Tan. It was Hugh. It was Ebony Junior. It was Ebony Africa for a short while. Ebony South Africa. Ebony Man. You know, they really kind of created a template, a platform for celebrating the best in Black uh, culture, and did so in, in in really through these kind of visual um, methods. You know, the pictures, the Black celebrities, so on and so forth. So they what they gave to American culture and really what they reflected of African-American life is really um, without parallel. And so I think despite a lot of the changes that are happening, even with the company 
right now, you can't really overstate the importance of Ebony Magazine, nor the importance of the Ebony Fashion Fair, right? Because it's it provided an opportunity for people who had been so maligned and so ill-treated, ill-represented to see what they knew about themselves and then also to see themselves beyond what they thought they could accomplish. So that is fantastic. Yes, it truly is. And Joy, this was a Real pleasure. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing the joy that is uh, Mrs. Johnson's Ebony Fashion Fair with us today. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it again. Joy, thank you for being here. The importance of Johnson's life and work can truly not be overstated enough. Mr. Johnson was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1996. And when he died at the age of 87 in 2005, 2,000 people attended his funeral cast, and the Reverend Jesse Jackson said of Johnson that, quote, he gave us our first mirror to see ourselves as a people of dignity, a people with intelligence and beauty. Put April as we know, and I've said time and again on the show, behind (laughs) every great man lies an even greater woman. I mean, of course, I'm joking, but not really. I mean, Eunice was a force to be reckoned with, the woman who not only gave Ebony Magazine its name, but gave millions of Black women around the world a glamorous, aspirational vision of themselves that affirmed, indeed, that Black was, is, and always will be beautiful. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the enduring legacy of the Ebony Fashion Fair next time you get dressed. Remember to tune in this Thursday for the latest edition of Fashion History Mystery, where we address questions from you, our listeners. We love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. Dressed underscore podcast is also our Twitter handle. And you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. For additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dresspodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dress. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dress. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. Catch you soon. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.